Welcome back to Church Online here at Coverage Up in Newcastle. It's great to have your company this evening. And, uh, you know, I was chatting to Ray and Sharon up in Stroud just earlier this weekend, and uh, we agree all around that it's just been a really odd time. We're really missing just the fellowship of seeing people's faces, of being able to give, give each other a hug, worshipping together, being able to pray for each other, all those things. But, um, you know, hopefully we can get back together again soon. In the meantime, we're continuing to pray for you guys, and, and I know you guys are praying for us. We just uh, just miss you and can't wait to see you again. So, you know, um, as we progress through this extraordinary time, I, I'm more convinced than ever that what the church has to offer is something completely unique to the world that's just choking on envy, on bitterness, and on fear. And I'd, I'd like to have a little look at that today. You can start making your way to First John, where we'll be continuing on from the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3. But do you remember the story of Jesus just after he's been accosted by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the teachers of the law? And they try to trap him with some, some tricky questions, some, some curly ones about taxes, about the resurrection uh, and, and about the greatest commandment. And, and Jesus, he, he, he answers wonderfully. But then he goes into this, this long warning um, to these supposedly righteous people, these self-proclaimed righteous people that culminates in some of the harshest words that Jesus has ever been recorded as having spoken. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside they're full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to be people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now contrast these fellows with the character Abraham. You read about him in Genesis 12, and it says that Abraham became fearful when there was a famine in the land and started looking to his own resources, despite God's clear call to put him there in the first place. He also decided to leave the promised land and made his way to Egypt, taking matters into his own hands in clear disobedience. Abraham tried to give up his wife to save his own life. Despite God's promise of protection, he was paralyzed with fear when Pharaoh found out about his ruse and ultimately his disobedience caused harm to both his wife, Sarah, and also to the Pharaoh and his household. Yet, in Romans 4, Paul says that Abraham was counted as righteous by God. So the question we want to look at today is, what is it that makes a person righteous? How can it be that someone so messed up like Abraham can be considered righteous, where someone who has it all together like these Pharisees and Sadducees can receive such harsh words from Jesus? You may recall in chapter 2, John has been addressing the topic of antichrists, plural. That is, those who set themselves up throughout the church age against Christ by either denying the truth of who he is or else trying to usurp his authority. We then looked at the solution in how we recognize these people, which was threefold, receiving and recognizing our anointing, having a biblical understanding of how we know truth and applying the knowledge, and number three, abiding in the Son and hence in the Father. So, We've been predominantly talking about recognizing and dealing with antichrists. And, and then John contrasts that, as John does, as he loves to do, with those who abide, which is where the last passage took us to in verse 28. 
And now we'll see that whilst on the topic of those who abide, it seems John wants to expound a little bit more about the nature of this particular group. To those who abide, namely Christians, he also gives a new label, sons of God. And we'll see in this section between verse 29 of chapter 2 and verse 3 of chapter 3, that he offers two characteristics of this group, righteousness and hope. But this discussion really springboards John into another one of his characteristic contrasts. He loves to contrast light and darkness, good and evil. And he does that. This, this contrast is, is basically between, um, between people of God and people of the devil. And that comprises the remainder of chapter 3. In this instance, as, he, as he's doing that contrast, he centers the discussion largely around the, the topics of righteousness and sin. A final point to make as we commence today's text is that when the original text was written, you know it was written as a letter. This meant that we didn't have these chapter and verse divisions that we see now. They were, they were added later to help with transmitting, remembering, analyzing, etc. to be able to, to teach and to learn. Uh, now, as much as possible, those who put the chapter, chapter markers in tried to make natural breaks in the text. Um, but every now and then you come across a break which just doesn't seem to make sense. Um, and I think this is one example. Uh, commentators disagree where the, where the break should be. There's, there's no great place to put a break because in the nature of writing a letter, you'll have a natural segue from one topic to another. So do you put it before the segue or after the segue? But I think here, the natural break in my mind is best after verse 28 before verse 29 because verse 28 really gives a summary of the chapter before and verse 29 really introduces a whole new topic that we delve into in, in chapter 3. On that note, let's begin with verse 29. And I should say at this stage that, um, that there's an outline that's, that's on the website as well. If you want to check it out, that's fine. Hopefully it'll be below on the, on the Facebook, um, on the Facebook uh, video as well. Um, but from, from verse 29 of 1 John chapter 2, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So straight into the meat. And we begin with this bold statement that, that ties something visible, that is the practice of righteousness, with something invisible, being born of him. First, to simplify the language, we don't routinely use the phrase being born of in the English language. In fact, we don't really have a word in modern English for this. It's a little like a combination between being parented and, and being created from, being born of. Second, when John says, if you know that God is righteous, since every one of his readers knows that God is righteous, this is akin to just saying, obviously. As an aside, when he says he is righteous for various grammatical reasons, it's most likely that he refers to God rather than to Christ. So let's rephrase this verse with what we have so far. Obviously, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been fathered by and or newly created by God. Hebert a scholar, sums it up nicely. He says, the practice of righteousness reveals membership in God's family. And this just leaves us with the question, what is righteousness? It's, it's probably worth just stopping there and exploring this topic a little. The Greek word basically means with rightness or alternatively with justness, but it's specifically used in relation to action or behavior. Taken as a whole, the Bible, it pretty much defines the righteous person as one who is perfect in every thought, behavior, word, and attribute. 
The problem is that it's obviously an impossibility for a sinful being to do that. And we know that we will never be free from sin until glorification. Yet we're told that we are righteous in God's sight. So how is this possible? The answer and one of the, the fundamental truths of basic Christian doctrine is that the righteous life of Christ is imputed to us. And that's a, it's a theological word that just basically means that, that his righteousness is made to belong to us. We couldn't produce it. Christ produced it for us. One of the very precious truths of Christianity is that Christians have a union with Christ. And in that union, Christ takes upon himself our sinful nature and deals with it at the cross. And we take upon us his own nature, which is perfect righteousness. So often as believers, we can be tempted to think that by changing our behavior, we can become more righteous by stopping swearing or quitting cigarettes or complaining less, bickering less, or even being kinder to strangers. But that's not how we attain righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he, that is God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we see that righteousness is something that starts from within. And in this side of glorification, it cannot be attained simply by altering behavior from the outside. Yet, this verse in 1 John seems to say something about those who practice righteousness. So, since we have righteousness imputed to us at our conversion, then it stands to reason that this righteousness must be different in its nature. So, how is it different? Well, the righteousness here is still a measure of thought, action, or behavior. But in this instance, it's not only the righteousness that Christ bestows upon us at conversion. It's the righteous living that comes from the work of Christ in his people now. In this sense, pursuing righteousness means pursuing God and his character above our own selfish desires. But it's something that continues to belong to Christ in that it's something that he does in and through us by his own nature. It's important at this point to realize the fact that this verse does not say that any who are born of God will practice righteousness. Now, you might make a case for that even later on in this epistle, but that's not what this verse is actually saying. That's not the point of this verse. The point of this verse is that if you see someone who is practicing righteousness, they're honoring God, walking in the Spirit, seeking truth, expressing the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When that person claims to be a Christian, then you can confidently say that this person is born of God. They belong to the family of God. This verse is about identifying those who are born of God so that we can fellowship with one another. Another way to phrase this is that righteous action is evidence of a life in God. But why is it relevant for us? The answer to that lies in, in realizing that the whole text we're studying today is really outlining a conflict that exists. Now, whether or not we realize it, we are in the middle of this conflict and it has two sides. On one side, the children of God that you and me are, are, are a part of. And on the other side is the children of the devil or Satan. We'll address this a little further in, in verse seven of the next chapter. So with a stage set for this epic conflict between these two groups of people, we get to one of my absolute favorite verses from all of scripture. First John chapter three, verse one, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. 
and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now, when the scripture tells us to see or behold, it's, it's usually because in reality we're failing to see or behold. So let's really stop and just see this truth. See what kind of love, what kind of love that we should be called God's children. This one Greek word translated what kind or what manner is really what's called an interrogative pronoun in Greek. It's used seven times in the New Testament and is really used as an adjective describing wonder or astonishment. And some of the, some of the translations, they translate it. They say, see how great the love of the Father is. It could just as easily be translated that way, how great. It's like, it's like the phrase we use in English, how about this? You know, which basically means that it's something out of the ordinary. Why? Because the love of the Father is so great that we should be called his children, his children. Do you know how profound that is? How profound it would have been to the early believers? It's worth quoting Romans 8 here, which states that those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Dad, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It's vital to note that called here does not mean named in the sense that it's not as if we're already God's children. He just names us to appropriately know. Being called here means being appointed, being called to a particular position. And that particular position is having a role in God's own family. Now, you often hear people saying that we're all God's children. But whilst the sentiment there is good, that we are all God's creation, and that he loves each one of us, technically only believers are considered to be children of God. And the biblical, the biblical evidence for this is absolutely clear. And what does this second part mean? The reason the world did not know us is that it did not know him. I would suggest that this means the way a Christian operates in the sense that it's different to the world's way of operating is thus completely foreign to the world. And the only way to understand the very basis of our behavior is to understand the who that is the basis, namely Christ. The word, the word for knowledge, gnosko, we've come across before in, in this study, and, and it could be just as easily translated as recognize or understand. So, so the reason the world does not understand us is that it does not understand Christ, or the reason the world does not recognize us is that it does not recognize Christ. By and large, the world does not know Christ. Sure, they may have heard something about him. They might, they might all agree that he a, a was a great person and a great moral teacher, but without recognizing that he's both fully divine and fully human, that he is the perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, you won't understand the group that follows in his footsteps. They'll seem strange like foreigners, which is why so often in Scripture we're described as sojourners, travelers or pilgrims. And we see here just a hint of the conflict that John will go on to further describe. Verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be, he has not, has not, and what, now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. In other words, John is saying we are already God's children. 
from the moment we put our trust in Jesus, even though we understand that we are not now perfect and it will change even further after glorification. Romans 8.18 says that creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. But we are already his children. And then there's this beautiful promise of something future, that we shall be like him. We see this in further detail in, in Romans 8.29, Philippians 3.21, and 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 and forward, that we shall be transformed or confirmed into his glorious likeness in body, soul, and spirit. As John MacArthur has written, the glorious nature of that conformity defies description. But as much as glorified humanity can be like incarnate deity without becoming deity, believers will be. But with John, we get here a glimpse of how this happens, in that it occurs because we see Christ as he is. And it's such a wonderful truth, even for us here and now. We cannot see Jesus being transformed. And the more clearly we see him, the more that we are transformed as the Holy Spirit works into us the image of Christ. Oh, that this would inform my own time of prayer and study. Verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We have this wonderful hope. Let's discuss hope for a second. Hope is ingrained into human beings. It's designed by God. And by God's common grace, it is available to all of humanity. As Emily Dickinson, the famous author, said, Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. It's basically a state in which your current sense of well-being is tied to something future. But the nature of hope depends entirely on that in which we place our hope. It's fine to hope for a good tax return if it seems likely that, that we're due one and you know there's... We have some nice things we want to spend our money on. By all means, put some hope in that. And sometimes we throw the word around, like, I, I hope the Knights will win the grand final. And other times it can be more certain, or at least a possibility in the case of the Knights. Nothing is more tragic, though, than when we, we see people staking their eternity on a false hope. But equally, there's nothing more beautiful than seeing someone stake their eternity on that which is utterly and totally certain. And that is God himself. We have lots to hope for. In this passage, what seems to be in view is our glorification. But we also have hope in Jesus' certain future return. We have hope in an eternity spent with God and so much more. But this hope has real world consequences. One, it's evangelistic properties. As we see in 1 Peter 3.15, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you number two it's a great comfort to us you know kendall sent me this this verse just this week from psalm 119 verse 114 you are my hiding place and my shield i hope in your word kendall said it so well she said there's something so deeply reassuring about picturing god as our hiding place and shield in this crazy world i mean how true is that right now and there are other effects of hope as well but here, John tells us that hope produces purity in us. It is as we live in the reality of an eternal God that we are able to rise above those selfish ambitions and express the life of Jesus in us in purity of both thought 
and action. And now John makes this transition from the sons of God with their hope and their striving for righteousness and provides one of his classic John type contrasts, his opposite contrasts. And he says in verse four, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Let me just read here from D. Edmund Hebert. He was a wonderful conservative biblical expositor since I think he summarizes so well the main point in this passage. He says, John now showed that the practice of sin is a serious matter which cannot be ignored. Since the false teachers seem to have held that knowledge was all important and conduct did not matter, John insisted that sin and its practice is irreconcilable with the very nature of Christianity. He had already mentioned sin before in, in chapter 1 verse 7 to 9 and chapter 2 verses 2 and 12, but now in 3 verses 4 to 9 he mentioned the concept of sin no less than 10 times. He pointed out that the practice of sin reveals its true nature and established the distinctness between the two classes of humanity, or the two groups in this instance. The first thing I think when I read this text is, hold on, but everyone keeps on sinning. And it's true. So what can it possibly mean? Not that we're made perfect to conversion. To believe this as imperfect people leads only to self-deception, to self-righteousness, to pride, to legalism, it also prevents us from confessing our sins, which, which is one of great, God's great remedies to habitual sin. No, what is in view here is the ongoing and unrepentant practice of sin. Now, it doesn't really matter the type of sin, from gluttony to gossip, from slander to sexual sin. Sin is lawlessness. Habitual sin is lawlessness. Hebrews ten sixteen says, and it says, um, God has hidden the word in your heart, hidden the law in your heart. God is speaking of Christians and it says, I have written, I've written what? I've written on their hearts, the law. I have written the law on their hearts. So we have the law written on our hearts. Lawlessness is to replace what God has put in our hearts with our own contrary, selfish, unrepentant desire. It may look okay from the outside. Heck, it may even look righteous but it is one or the other. Habitual sin is the removal of God's law from our hearts. That is our volitional center, the part where we continue to make choices. At this point, I think it's worthwhile giving both, uh, giving some reassurance really. First, if your first thought is, oh no, I, I just feel so guilty. Perhaps God has chosen to let me go. Perhaps my sin is too great to be forgiven. Know this. There is no sin from a believer that is unforgivable. None. The very fact that you feel guilt is a sure sign of the work that the Spirit is doing in you to bring you to repentance. We are all messed up people, but God loves us anyway. If you struggle with sin, if you're fed up with yourself, if you sometimes doubt that it's even possible to be free of whatever it is that you're struggling with, you're in good company. We are a community of imperfect people, and we all know it. Throughout this epistle, John provides a number of tests 
to determine who is and who is not a member of the body of Christ. We've seen the test of love, the test of doctrine, the test of obedience in chapter 2. And similar to the test of obedience, we now see the test of sin versus righteousness. It's the practical application of the theory that we saw in verses 4 and 5 and 6. So from verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he, that's Jesus, is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. This text, along with a summary uh, point in verse 10 below, are a little challenging to us. The idea of calling anyone a son of the devil seems awkward to say the least, least, if not plain controversial. There are two main interpretations that you'll see in the commentaries. One, the most common, simply embraces the controversy and states that although it sounds harsh to our ears, it's simply a statement of reality, that if you're not a son of God, you are a son of the devil. Not that they are born of him, but that his way of operating effectively against God and their final destination, that is hell, will be their norm, whether they realize it or not. After all, Jesus himself said in Matthew 12.30, if they are not with me, they are against me. In this view, it is reiterated that this does not mean those people are any less valuable to God. It is still God's desire that none should perish. The second view is that this is addressed to Christians about Christians. This has the advantage of not calling your best non-Christian mates children of the devil. It argues that since it is addressed to Christians, it is akin to saying that when you behave in a way that doesn't conform with a life of righteousness, you are effectively working for the devil. That's Christians. After all, Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. The problem with this view is that it labels genuine Christians as sons of the devil. And this just doesn't seem in any way consistent with the rest of scripture. A third option that I would like to propose is that this is not talking about non-Christians as a whole, but neither is it describing only real Christians. Instead, I think it's describing what we would call confessing Christians, which includes both the wheat and the tares within the visible church. In John's context, as we saw in the last chapter dealing with Antichrist, we know that he is dealing with these elements within the church that are teaching heresy. And they are not of us, says John. It's a similar situation here. We never called as Christians to judge those outside of the church. That's for God. But we are called to show discernment with those who claim to be believers. We've already seen the test of doctrine, the test of obedience, and the test of love. And now we see the test of righteousness versus lawlessness. We are called when confronted with a self-confessed Christian who persists in unrepentant sin to take it seriously. Remember who it was that received Jesus' most harsh criticism. Again, it was those self-reported, righteous, intelligent, intelligent, knowledgeable men whose hearts were nevertheless corrupt. Now, you might have a person who is a very difficult character who continues to struggle with all sorts of issues, but at the heart of it, they're repentant of what they know to be wrong. We all are work in progress, and this is not what is in light here. We need to remember to be gracious, just as we need grace. No, this is the person who, despite correction, reveals zero desire to live the righteous life that God desires. And that's a very serious issue indeed. But we continue now with somewhat of a parenthesis from John. 
It seems that whilst on the topic of sin, he wishes to impart some understanding about the solution to that sin. Verse 8b, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So the solution has already been given. This is the very reason that Jesus came, even for the person of lawlessness, if they become truly born of God, that is, if they put their faith in the saving work of Jesus, then those works will be destroyed. The process will start immediately and will come to fulfillment at Jesus' return. He cannot keep sinning. Yes, he can keep committing sin, but will no longer live a life of habitual sin. Why? Because he has been born of God. The seed has been planted. There is no room for another life as this, as this seed matures through sanctification. Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. So a little reiteration here of the main point to get us out of the parenthesis and back to the main subject. And then John does something interesting here. He ties a believer's practice of righteousness with love for his brother. We've discussed love for brothers previously in chapter 2, and we'll address it again in chapter 4. But it's worth noting here the way John ties it to righteousness. You see, it would be possible to live a life of apparent righteousness and completely avoid fellowship or even to attend church but lack anything resembling love for the saints and john is pointing out that this is just as serious a problem as the one who rejects the life of righteousness you cannot love god and not love god's family love is not simply the avoidance of doing harm love is active in its service of others I've met people who claim to be Christians, yet seem to hate Christ's body. And here we have an, a story to illustrate this exact point in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. See, Cain was a part of the family. He grew up with Abel. They did the dishes together. They probably hunted together and collected food together. Remember, they both made sacrificial offerings to God. Yet Cain's heart was full of malice, and this resulted in him murdering his brother. Jesus says that if you hate someone, you have committed murder. The underlying intent is there to do harm rather than good, envy rather than a hope for the betterment of the other. It's a great example of the conflict in which we find ourselves. Ephesians 6.12 says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemy is not the world. They are a rescue mission. Our enemy is the evil one. We must stand firm in the faith and resist his schemes. This reality can be a fearful one. The system of the world is set up against us. But we have something that the evil one does not have. We have God, the creator of heaven and earth, 
We have God, the very origin of all being. We have God who commands angels, who in Isaiah 66 is described as the Lord who will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. And what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So there we have it. This is our battle. We are called to righteousness, to purity. We are called to love the brethren. And as sons of the living and powerful God, we're not only given the means by which to fulfill that calling, we're given a wonderful hope that at the end, we will be made perfect as he is perfect. And you know, as I was driving here over to Sherwin's house, I really, I really believe that the Lord wanted me to share something in particular with you. First, perhaps you're one of those people characterized by lawlessness. Perhaps you've been playing the game. Perhaps all these years you've been putting on a show. Perhaps you've been hiding some sort of habitual sin, maybe for years, maybe for a short period of time, but deep down, you don't want to do that anymore. I encourage you to get right with God. The rest will follow. God is gracious. Or maybe it's not so bad for you. Maybe maybe there's no habitual sin, but you continue to struggle regularly with the same old problems. Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's fear or doubt. Or maybe you lack the love for the brethren that, that, that God demands of his people. You know, there have been weeks, months even, in my own life where I have been spiritually dry. And, you know, I'm an elder, I'm a worship leader, I'm supposed to have it all together. And maybe I'll come along to the fellowship and, and someone will say, how are you going? And I'm, I'm like, yeah, it's great, it's all good. But inside, it's like my spiritual life is a, is a parched paddock. And, and the few blades of grass that remain are wilted and colourless. They've clung on through the drought. But, you know, I've got to keep it all together. So it's like I get that paddock and I just start rolling out the astroturf to make it look green. And it looks great. You know, it's, it's easy to walk on. It looks fantastic. Everybody can see that it's doing really, really well. But inside, it's killing the grass. And when the, when the heat of the day comes, there's no water there. There's no shade. There's no coolness. There's no feed. It's dead. I mean, my heart is so corrupt that there are times when I'm reading in my quiet time and I'm like underlining parts of my Bible and thinking, if I underline this extra bit, then maybe the person sitting next to me at church next time I'm there will see that I've underlined it. I mean, how messed up is that? Just the pride that goes along and prevents us from really getting to the core of what's going on spiritually. And you think, people will think, wow, he's so spiritual. So I put out this astroturf. It's killing everything underneath. I don't want to be like that. And maybe you struggle with the same thing. Maybe there's been a patch of dryness even now. But let me tell you that when our farm was going through the recent drought last year, there was just one thing that needed to come good again. That's water. Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I give him 
will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let's pray. Lord God, I just pray for this fellowship. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Lord, we thank you that you are righteous, that your son is righteous and in, in, in has put his righteousness upon us. Lord, we praise you for your goodness. Lord, if any of us are in that spiritually dry place, I pray that you will just provide refreshment, Lord. Heavenly Father, God of hope, give us your mercy. May we come to you, the source of living water. And would you refresh us, Lord? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.